This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The risks that matter are what I call material risks, which are things that can cause problems over the course of years. The dominant one is climate change. Noted risk expert Richard Bookstaver warns it's already underway. He'll have the details on Consuelo Mack Track. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. Are we entering a new epoch of crisis, a slow motion tidal wave of risks that will wash over our economy in the next decades? Well, that rather alarming point of view is from a recent essay in the New York Times penned by noted risk expert Richard Bookstaver. Bookstaver, a longtime guest on WealthTrack, is worth listening to. He has a proven track record of spotting risks and helping private and public institutions manage them. Bookstaber is chief risk officer of Fabric, a platform he created in 2018 to provide risk management to wealth managers and asset owners. He previously held top risk management positions at a number of institutions, several at critical times during financial crises. He worked with the SEC and Treasury in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, helping build out the risk management structure for the Financial Stability Oversight Council and draft the Vocal Rule, which restricts proprietary trading by banks. He was at Morgan Stanley during the 1987 market crash, Solomon Brothers during the 1998 failure of hedge fund long-term capital management, and just before the global financial crisis warned of the dangers of financial derivatives and leverage in his 2007 book, A Demon of Our Own Design, Markets, Hedge Funds, and the Perils of Financial Innovation, critiquing some of the complex financial instruments he helped create. You can find our previous interviews with him on WealthTrack.com. Currently, Bookstaber is tracking what he calls slow-motion risks, including climate change, demographics, deglobalization, and artificial intelligence, which he believes represent threats to the economy, the stability of society, and even to civilization itself. But before we tackle those, I asked him to assess some of the more conventional challenges facing the economy and markets now. What are his most immediate concerns? Well, Everybody's concerned about the possibility of recession, and I am too. Everybody's concerned not just about inflation, because inflation's here, but will it continue, will it get even worse? Uh, But again, that's on everybody's mind, and the Fed is addressing that, as well as the issue with recession. The concern I have now that really could cascade into a crisis is what's going on with the small and regional banks. And it's not so much the banks themselves, it's what their function is and what'll happen when they can't fulfill those functions. What are their functions and and when can a bank not fulfill those functions? Just bring us down to the basics. The key thing is for a small and regional bank, small businesses get their funding from those banks. And if the banks can't 
provide them credit, they have to pull back in their business. Maybe they can't provide the same amount of inventory. Uh, so a problem with the banks can cascade over to affect small businesses and can do it all over the, the country. The second problem is that a lot of the balance sheet of small and regional banks is in commercial real estate. Uh, so if they have problems with funding and commercial real estate itself has problems, you now have uh, weakening in the commercial real estate area. You know, offices already are really uh, having problems. So it's not just the banks that are the problem. Of course, the depositors in the banks are almost certainly going to be made whole. It's the function of the banks in terms of commercial real estate on the one hand and providing credit to small businesses on the other. If I were a small business, for instance, or I'm an individual who is a shareholder of regional banks, what's your advice? What sort of action can individuals take to manage yeah. these risks? If you have equity in one of these banks, I'm risk oriented. I'm not oriented towards here's a way to make money. <clears throat> but the fact is the risk is higher now than it has been. And from a risk standpoint, if you want to maintain a good risk posture, you reduce your exposure to things if they become notably riskier. The recession, soft landing, hard landing, how much does that really matter? Uh, and I, again, I'm thinking it through the lens of investors and the markets. Whatever it was uh, before, it's got to be harder now <laughs> because what's, you know, recessions occur, usually credit is at the center of uh, pushing recessions forward. And we, we have the total blueprint now to see uh, a reduction in credit and a reduction at the mom and pop small business level, which permeates the economy, permeates the country, uh, is uh, you know, essential for a lot of the local functions. So that suggests that the risk of recession is higher than it might have been otherwise. Inflation. So you can't talk about the risk of inflation because inflation is there. What you can talk about is the, the risk that it hamstrings the Fed so they can't deal with the credit issues and the recession issues because of the fear that if they do that, it'll exacerbate inflation. They're kind of constrained from cutting interest rates to ease up credit conditions um, because of their, their war against inflation. The problem is it's like you have to push the brake and the accelerator at the same time. So if people feel like the Fed can't do the job to deal with recession. It makes the risk to the market of recession all the worse. Rick, you were on first on WealthTrack in 2007, yeah. and you, know, you wrote a book called A Demon of Our Own Design, and basically talking about the markets and hedge funds and the complexity of all of these financial innovations that have occurred, it just strikes me that, that some of the, the risks that were, uh, were very apparent then, which is you know, high leverage and um, you know, individual exposure to stocks and high valuations, and I mean, those still exist, right? And certainly complexity and financial innovation still exist. Has anything really changed? You know, it is interesting that we're sitting here 15 years later, basically talking about the same sort of problems. Right. Uh, and that just goes to show again to the issue of regulation. We clearly aren't doing something right. If you look back just a, a short period, and it still is the case, it's moderated somewhat. We have very high leverage. 
The percent of equities held by households is very high. Uh, there's a lot of concentration in the market. The top uh, 20 stocks you know, dominate in terms of market cap. And valuations, fortunately, valuations have gone down. They're still not like on, you know, at a, a level, but that's better than it has been. Businesses were oriented towards and consumers were oriented towards the idea that we now had a new world where interest rates would be basically to where there's free money. And, and now we're discovering, wait a minute, you have to pay money if you want to borrow. And that really causes problems for a lot of businesses and people in their planning, especially if you have to refinance uh, and suddenly you're doing it at a higher rate. Uh, and, you know, so that's that's a big problem. We can talk about the federal government, for instance, is in exactly that same situation where a, a large percentage of the uh, of the debt is financed on short term on a short term basis, short term treasuries. Yeah. And their financing costs have exploded as well as the Fed has raised interest rates. How big a risk is that? How much of a concern is that to you? I don't look at that as much of a risk. You don't. Why not? No, because the government isn't a business. The government isn't a household. Right. It, granted, it would cause inflation, but they can, in various ways, print money. Uh, so the idea of the government having high debt doesn't lead to the type of credit problems that occur if an individual or a company has high debt. I will move that down my list of concerns <laughs> then. I feel so much better about that. Ricky, you advise uh, you know, institutions and governments um, on managing risk and have throughout your career. But from an individual's perspective um, and for your own perspective, for instance, I mean, how do you deal with these risks um, on a personal basis? Part of my, my business now at, at this the company I founded called Fabric is to focus on individuals as opposed to working in hedge funds or whatever. And there's a big difference uh, in how to think about risk if you're an individual mm -hmm. versus an institution. And the difference is very much in the favor of an individual. But if you're an individual, say, who's in their 30s, uh, your focus is longer term. If you're an individual at my age, the focus is not so long term, but you can look at the issues that are happening and uh, adjust based on the time frame you have in your need for when you're going to uh, have to liquidate your portfolio or parts of your portfolio. So when we talk about recession and the banking problems that may lead to it, typically recessions run their course over, pick a amount of time, one year, two years, three years. If your time frame is six, seven, 10, 15 years, you are not under the gun to the level that, say, a hedge fund is that has to report monthly. The question to ask is, given my level of risk in my portfolio and the time frame uh, that I have, is this something that I really have to changed notably my portfolio you know on the basis of and i think for most of the things that we see on uh the news and that are the focus we really can take a breath um i, I you know again if you need uh, if you're looking at three years five years that may not be true we've talked on wealth talk about the stock concentration and making yeah. sure that you're not too concentrated in those top 10 tech names right trying to avoid leverage for instance um, you know, what is your exposure to stocks? What's your risk tolerance? So those are all things 
that, that, we, that we can do. So risk management 101 is be diversified. From your perspective, what does it mean to be diversified? So being diversified means making sure that you have a fairly even portfolio across all the different sectors of the economy. And that requires being a little more evenly weighted than say would be the case right now if you held the S&P 500. There are equal weighted indexes, for instance, right. that you can buy. I would move towards more equal weighted types of portfolios and away from ones that are cap weighted. And, and diversification, does that also include uh, you know, international stocks? Does it include uh, you know, alternative investments? Does it include you know, like real estate or private equity or gold, yeah. commodities? Yeah. I, what do you, you think? Know, well, here's the thing that if you go internationally and say hold the MSCI ACWI, which is a, a popular international index and there's an ETF on it, you're still 65 to 70% in the US. And a lot of the other countries that you're holding are highly correlated with the US. So it helps, it certainly helps to do it, but it's not a magic bullet. Private equity has some panache to it right now because it's something big institutions do. And right. there's been a period of time where it was very successful. Just because something is private versus public doesn't mean it's adding diversification if it's in the same sort of business area, if it's in the same sector. So I don't think going to private helps you in terms of risk management and diversification. You only do it if you think the opportunity exceeds the, low, the lower liquidity that you have. I mentioned in, in my introduction to you about this new epoch of crisis that, that you are saying that, that we are entering. And, um, and to talk to us about this, this slow motion tidal wave. What's, what's going on? So everything we talked about is here and now risks that every investor is, is focused on or should be focused on. Uh, but again, if you're looking at things from the standpoint of many individuals uh, who are investing for their retirement or maybe investing for their children uh, going forward over time, the risks that matter are what I call material risks, which are things that can cause problems over the course of years. The dominant one is climate change. And you know, I know everybody says, oh my gosh, not climate change again. But look, the thing is, when people think about climate change, they're thinking in 30 years, this might happen. In 50 years, this might happen. But we're seeing the start of that even now. Uh, just this last summer, uh, energy was affected by climate change. Nuclear power in France, hydroelectric in Norway, uh, hydroelectric power even in, in the US uh, West. Right, because uh, of, of droughts, lack of water. That's right. You couldn't cool the nuclear power plants uh, in France. Uh, and then with hydroelectric, you just don't have the water. And, uh, and there are problems with supply chains. A lot of rivers were essentially closed to barges. Uh, obviously, there are problems with agriculture. There's problems with labor in some countries. It's so hot that people simply can't work efficiently. So, so it's a problem that exists now. but. It's a problem that will only accelerate over time. So whatever you see now, think of it five years, 10 years, 15 years from now, it's going to have more and more of an impact on the economy. And it's something then that you have to focus on, even though it sort of seems like it's in the background compared to things that we're talking about, you know, day to day. And, and one of the, I think, fascinating things is, is from an investment point of view, you actually, I mean, can construct a portfolio that takes into account, you know, so are there certain countries or industries that I 
want to avoid or want to participate in because they are being affected by climate change starting now, but will be more in the future. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? So there's some regions where it's no secret already now uh, that they're going to have problems going forward in climate. One of them, interestingly, is India, which is sort of a favorite for a lot of people. Uh, but uh, if you want to invest in India right now with the idea, you know, you can move out of it quickly, that's fine. But India long term, I think, can have a lot of uh, issues uh, because of a lot of facets of climate that hit India. Uh, anything having to do with real estate, you have to think carefully. Um, it's interesting. Miami is a very popular area right now. But, but everybody knows that it's at the brunt of sea level rise over time. So fine, if, if you want to uh, buy a place there, uh, just realize that in 10 years, it may be difficult to get to roll over your mortgage. Uh, you may not be able to sell it as easily, especially if there are restrictions, flood restrictions uh, that make it hard for people to get mortgages. There's no secret. It's going to be kind of evident where right. areas tend to be hit by climate change. But because it is this slow motion uh, tidal wave, you know, uh, it, it's easy to kind of get lulled away from taking it seriously as part of what you consider from a risk standpoint in your portfolio. Demographics is another another one of these kind of slow moving tidal waves. And, and, and how do we invest around demographics? Obviously, the demographics are aging in the developed world and, and certainly in China uh, as well. The thing that's interesting about both climate change and demographics is they're very long term, but they're more predictable than some short term things. Uh, with demographics, you know, absent immigration, what the labor force and what the aged population is going to look like 30 years from now. We know that in China, unless there's a dramatic social change, and that's very difficult to do, the population is going to be half of what it is now by the end of the century. Uh, and in the U.S., uh, there are some signs that we'll be able to hopefully deal with Alzheimer's, but if we can't, uh, Alzheimer's and similar problems, we're going to have an older population that really is overweighted compared to the, the uh, wage earning population. Uh, that's going to really stress the whole implied social contract between the young and the old. Uh, and many of the people who are retired or retiring uh, don't have the sort of savings to help support them in that event. Uh, but we are in much better shape than a lot of other countries. China, as you mentioned, uh, Japan, um, the saving grace for some of the European countries and for us, for that matter, might be immigration uh, insofar as countries are willing to let that go. But that even comes with a social cost. Deglobalization is another one. We've only got two left, but deglobalization yeah. de is one of them. And again, uh, winners, losers, how do you manage deglobalization? And, and you think this is a real trend, that this is yeah. here to stay? Yes, China, obviously, you know, the, the U.S. has changed its view of China. Uh, when I say deglobalization, I think you could say de-Chinaization because that's the dominant area. Uh, you know, it took 40 years to move globalization to where it is now. It may not take 40 years to dismantle it, but it'll be a process that takes years. As that happens, you're going to have what's been called friend shoring, where uh, countries do their uh, supply chain and production and push consumption with their friends, with their allies. For us, that means Europe. It means Japan. It means Korea. It doesn't mean China. So 
what I'd be doing from an investment standpoint is moving more of my portfolio to the friend shore uh, and away from China, away from emerging markets. Uh, one beneficiary also, because it's obviously within our sphere is Mexico. And we all know that Mexico really has been uh, benefiting already from this. Right, so it's friendshoring to our allies. And also, uh, it tells me that we're onshoring here as well. So the investment in, in our own country. So if you have a longer term orientation, you know, this. anytime you do a major shift like this, there's a cost. You have to build a physical plant, things initially. You don't get the advantages of the cheap labor, although China isn't quite there still. But, uh, but over time, you get a, a, an increased uh, plant in the US. And so I think the real winner uh, for doing this is uh, the US and the US market. If you're going in for a long period of time, the risk is a lot less here than if you were saying looking internationally. So this is kind of the opposing view of diversifying internationally. But if the risk, again, is seen as increasing, then that suggests dropping down. It's, it doesn't have to be a bet but it can be a, a reasonable risk decision to say, where will risk be lower? Where will risk be higher? And on that basis, moving more assets towards the low risk area, which tends to be the US. And speaking of that, so one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you recommend that we all own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? Well, the area that I think dominates when you think about demographics, climate change, and the friendshoring effects of deglobalization is the US. Not very imaginative, but I'd be focused on the US and to the point of diversification. I wouldn't be holding a market cap weighted index where a few stocks are really dominating your total investment. So I would go towards an equal weighted uh, ETF in the US, uh, the iShares MSCI ETF, uh, it's EUSA. Uh, is a natural choice. That's not the only one. There's a bunch of them that can do the same thing. Rick, speaking of diversification, you know, what about China, which has such a dominant role in certainly emerging market and international indexes now? My view with China in the face of deglobalization uh, is that the risk is higher than the benefit you'd get from diversification. So I would tend to underweight China. And again, I'm coming at it not saying China will underperform because I don't want to try to prognosticate returns. Uh, but absent a strong view that you have about China will overperform or underperform, just on a risk basis, you're going to see increased risk based on the prospects of deglobalization, the prospects from uh, demographics. You'll see increased risk for China. Uh, and so on that basis alone, for a well-risk managed portfolio, you should be reducing exposure. The fourth item in the slow motion tidal wave of risk that is going to be washing over our economy and markets and civilizations is AI, artificial intelligence, which you call a wild card. How concerned are you about AI? How concerned should we be? I think we have to be concerned because there's a lot of areas where artificial intelligence can have an effect. Uh, it has frightening possibilities for warfare. It has uh, issues in terms of risk of privacy. Uh, there's notions of end of work for some types of work as it takes over. What we're seeing with chatbots over the last while is 
is just one manifestation of what might happen. And I say what might happen because although we have a good read on climate, on deglobalization, on demographics, the reason AI is a wild card is where it goes over the next 5, 10, 15 years, it's hard to pin it down because a lot of it depends on our creativity. We don't know what we'll create and the directions we can go with it, but we know it has a potential to have a major effect in a lot of aspects of our lives. And uh, so it, it's a risk we can't ignore, but it's the one risk that's very difficult for us to get our arms around and to make a statement about how do you best invest or how do you control risk in the face of uh, what might happen with AI? So that's one area, AI, that you, Rick Booksaver, are going to be tracking closely. <laughs> yeah, and, and tracking closely, this is not like a one or two year thing. Rick Booksaver, is such a treat to have you. Thank you so much for helping us understand the risks that we should be watching and also uh, how to manage some of them. We really appreciate it. Well, it's great to be on again. Thanks. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is be aware of concentrated stock positions in your portfolio. A handful of tech companies have recently regained their outsized influence on the market and now comprise around 25% of the S&P 500's market cap. And according to the Wall Street Journal, Megatech looms even larger in individual investors' portfolios at around 50% of stock holdings. So much for diversification. Is being this concentrated risky? Yes, it is. As Bookstaver told us, how risky depends upon each individual's situation. But there is no time like the present to do a personal risk assessment of your stock portfolio. How does it stack up to your financial goals and ability to withstand concentrated market shocks? Next week, Christine Benz discusses key retirement blind spots and how to fix them. That's in part two of our Building a Better Retirement series. In this week's extra feature, Rick Bookstaver gives us a sneak preview of the book he is working on about the risk to civilization. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a wonderful Father's Day weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.